This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled A True Free Market. Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. Author Stephen Taft joins me from the New York City area in the United States of America. Welcome, sir, to the program. It's good to be here, Jay. Thank you. This is an important topic and certainly one that's on everyone's mind. If it's not the politics in the United States, it's uh, worldwide. People are concerned about finances. Some want to take from uh, the ones that have already made it and give it to the ones that haven't made it. What is the purpose of your book? Why did you decide to tackle such a difficult subject? I decided to tackle this subject because we don't seem to be able to get it right. Capitalism is a wonderful thing. It, it, it respects uh, human ambition, and uh, it respects the fact that there are differences among us in, in talent and ambition, but we don't seem to be able to do it in a way that, that makes many people happy. There's always a few that are thrilled, right? Uh, but half, half the country always seems to be upset for some reason. And I, I wrote this book because I have all the respect in the world for capitalism, even admiration for capitalism, and I just got frustrated that we can't do it better. And the book shows not only why we have the problems that we do, but also suggests ways to fix them that are kind of out-of-the-box answers. They get away from the tax rate should be a little right. bit higher, or the tax rate should be a little bit lower. Right, and, and you should penalize those who are making more money than those that are making less, and those kinds of uh, questions and statements that get thrown around. You've, you've cited Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address where he basically said that the government is supposed to re- restrain men from injuring one another and leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement. So his concept or his his viewpoint was that men should get out there and work and and uh, prosper from their efforts. Is that right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's Is okay. There a, a question to follow, or well, I just, just wanted to comment. On no, that? I just wanted you to comment on Thomas Jefferson and and how that that work ethic, that that concept, that uh, drive, that energy has been lost over the last century or so. Well, it's if it's been lost, it's been lost because. Uh, I think we've lost sight of what an economy is for. And I, I, I realize that's a strange thing to say, but right. I mean, an economy is the rules by which we all get along. It, it enables uh, strangers to have, have interactions with each other and, and exhibit a, a modicum of trust between each other because there is a government behind the transaction. Correct. Uh, so, so in, in no way uh, would I advocate for eliminating uh, the government, but the government has to understand what it's supposed to do. Now, in Jefferson's quote, which is a great place to start talking about this, I think, I think the, the word that kind of led us astray is the harm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to get the quote in front of me here. Sure, the, qu- the quote uh, talks about harm, and it says, uh, "Shall not take labor or mouth of labor the bread they earned, right? And so on. And it so, talks about the harm. So, yes. So the harm can be defined in many different ways. Obviously, you know, harm. Uh, the obvious way is uh, if someone wants to take something from you by force, you know, with a gun or a club or something. That's a form of harm. Uh, but there's also uh, more subtle forms of harm. Uh, you know, if, if there's a chemical spill on your property that, that didn't, wasn't your own fault, mm-hmm. you know, that's a form of harm. If, if there is a, a contract that was misrepresented to you, that's a form of harm. You know, so, so you need government to accommodate these different forms of harm and try to prevent them or rectify them at least. And, you know, we are a very litigious society. Correct. 
And uh, I think that part of the government's growth has been because people want total safety and total protection in their lives, and it's just really not attainable, but we keep trying. What do you so think? we try to eliminate all these different harms. What do you think of the analogy of the government perhaps being a, 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 an impartial referee, perhaps, on the sideline? Would that really be a better way of describing the ideal situation? Well, it's the government that makes the laws that we have to follow. Right. And the government can only be impartial if the laws themselves are impartial. So the laws can't be made to favor one company over another within an industry. And ideally, the laws can't be made to favor one industry over another. That makes sense. Uh, you know, the, so, so the, the impartiality that you talk about, Jay, has to be within the law itself, and then the government's actions are going to follow. So we need to really understand uh, what's happening in our economy, and that's what I try to get at in the book. That we have just have to write our laws on a deeper level and and kind of take the petty politics out of it. I I would love to see that happen. Uh, personal responsibility, personal restraint, I think, is something that's missing, and even corporate restraint in some instances. And uh, sometimes the laws, the the restrictions, the roadblocks that are set up by governmental agencies seem to impede the progress of a free society. I was uh, looking at your chapters. You have one called Free Land Ho. What is that chapter, Chapter 7? What does that refer to? Well, the idea there is that uh, to have a free market, there has to be free choice, not only within the market. I mean, you don't you have to be able to say no to any transaction, really, or it's not a free market. Mm-hmm. And to be a truly free market, it should be a choice to even participate in it or not. And that chapter, Freeland Ho, shows how that can be part of our freedom as well, how, how people can kind of opt out and still be responsible for their own livelihood, their own well-being, without depending on government or any sort of payments from other people in society to help support them. You have used the, the term liberty and justice through economics. Uh, flesh that out a little bit for my listeners. What does that mean in your way of thinking and uh, descriptions? Well, we have these rules, these laws in place that really have had the effect of causing a lot of problems in the economy. Uh, and I will uh, uh, illustrate those uh, but to answer your question, when we when we structure the economy with laws so that we're spending so much effort to fix things all the time mm. and adjust things all the time, it, it takes away from our liberty and freedom, and it, and it, cre- it creates inefficiencies. Uh, and, and if people have uh, the freedom to uh, choose at every step of the way, the kind of life they're going to have, instead of being born into some kind of dire circumstance, uh, then uh, there has to be more freedom around. There's also, by the way, uh, that unleashes the entrepreneurial spirit that we all have. Instead of having it concentrated in the top few percent who have access to funds, that's where most entrepreneurship comes from right now. You know, we we can free it up across all walks of life. That's true. You you have mentioned in in some of your dialogue the term "have" or "have nots." Uh, there is a television program that I've noticed on the air internationally that is titled "The Haves and Haves Not Have Nots." Uh, how do you address that uh, envy that's being perpetrated between? people of, uh, of means and those who have, uh, I guess, survived the entrepreneurial effort or journey and those who are still struggling. What is the way that you can motivate them? Well, first of all, let me say I have not seen that show. I hadn't even heard of that show until this conversation. Okay. So I'm not commenting on that show. That's fine. It's, uh, it's on the O but, Network. But, I will share that uh, that bit of, of detail for you. But but the the idea in a true free market is not about mitigating the results. It's not about uh, taking uh, from a billionaire and giving to a poor person. It's about 
creating a, a, a true, a fair playing field where there is an equal opportunity across the board, and then results take care of themselves. Nice. I mean, if someone can become a billionaire from having a, had a fair start, more power to them. Wonderful. You know? And so we really should be focusing on creating a fair playing field instead of focusing on redistributing results. But the reason we have to do that is because of the laws we have in place. And some of those, right. we have to refocus. I mean, the, the idea of whether the tax rate should be 38% or 32% or 24% isn't going to fix anything in the long run. We have to, we have to get away from the idea of, of uh, that, of, of taxing income and capital and, and moving on to other answers. What has been the, the one chapter or the one idea that those who have read your book have gravitated towards and said, wow, that, that really does make a lot of sense? Or is there more than one? I'm sure there are. but Well, yeah, there are. There, the, the book is very, um, if I can dare say this, it's, it's fairly rich in uh, new ideas, some old ideas that aren't talked about much, but also new ideas. And uh, it has a tendency to uh, excite some people uh, in some ways, and those same people are kind of leery about other things. So it, it, the appeal is not to someone who thinks uh, in a conservative mind or, or with a liberal mind. It kind of ignores those classifications and, and speaks to ideas that just seem to work from the fundamentals of human nature. Uh, and I'm sure in this uh, talking that I did not answer your question. Oh, you're close enough, uh, though. That's that's all right. You have you have approached the book in in your writing style uh, almost as though it were a fictional novel in some ways. You have a conversation in your first chapter between two gentlemen, and I'm sure this was part of uh, perhaps observation, but also part of just life experience that you shared here. Uh, did you use this style throughout the book? Yes, the the conversation between these two old friends is. The whole book, other than the uh, introduction and the closing chapter, everything that's in between is the conversation between these two guys. The reason I took that approach is because uh, economics at its heart is not about formulas and percentages, it's about how laws affect people mm -hmm. and the choices that we can make. And so by keeping it on the level of the human being, and hopefully readers will like these guys, uh, or at least one of the two, <laughs> you know, the economics, I think, can be brought to a level where it should be operating instead of the level where it is operating in our current culture. And makes it very approachable as well. It's, it, it makes a very complex subject one that is more easily understood the way you've approached this. I think so. That was the intention. Uh, if I may, let me just talk about, uh, you know, I talked about getting away from tax rates. Correct. Uh, let me just uh, talk about why that's important. Because when we're taxing incomes, uh, for example, it causes problems. I mean, we look at it as a way to fix problems by adjusting the rate. But the, the reality is, is that taxing incomes causes problems. And I can explain that this way about half of us in rough numbers uh, pay an income tax and half of us don't. Hmm. Everyone who pays the income tax is either getting a salary to give them a certain lifestyle uh, or they're producing goods uh, to give them a certain lifestyle. And right. sell, you know, they're selling those goods. So the fact of the matter is salaries have to work on an after-tax basis and prices of products have to work on an after-tax basis for the people who make them. But everybody is buying products, whether we're working or not. The poor and the retired are buying products in the same way that uh, the people who are wealthy and working are buying products. It's true. So, so, the, so the prices have the uh, tax liability for the people making that stuff built into the price. So what happens is uh, even the, the non-working people, the poor and the retired, end up paying some of the tax for the wealthy and the working. That's true. And it makes uh, the poor poor and the rich richer than they otherwise would be. Mm. It's a tough So if we can get away cycle. from that, a lot of problems go away, too. Stephen, how long did it take you to, to create or finish this project? 
it took me about 20 years to wow. think about it and about four and a half years to write it. You've done a great job. I love the approach that it's a conversation between two older gentlemen in New York City at Central Park, and, and it just sets the uh, the atmosphere for a conversation about life and, and about this particular subject. A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. My guest, Stephen Taft. Now, sir, where do we get copies of this book, and where can my listeners get in touch with you? Copies can be had uh, at BarnesandNoble.com, uh, Amazon.com, uh, Google Play, Apple Play. Uh, local bookstores will order it if you walk in there and ask for it. Uh, it's available as hardback, ebook, uh, and paperback. Do you have a website or do you have another project oh, yeah, in the web? Get in touch with me. Sure, absolutely. Uh, my, if you want to email me, uh, thank you. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, if you want to email me, it's Steve. At a truefreemarket.com. Excellent. And, is there uh, and a pro- I'm happy to uh, talk, and I, I keep, uh, there's a True Free Market Facebook page. I blog uh, at a truefreemarket.com also, uh, and I'm totally uh, eager and open to uh, talking with people about this because just as the book is a conversation, that's how any change happens is with conversation. Everything starts as a conversation. Wonderfully said. Uh, whether it's, so that's what I want to help spark is a new conversation. Thank you for sharing your ideas and for completing this project, A True Free Market. Is there another project in the future that you're working on now? Yes, there, there is another project. It'll, it'll be necessary if A True Free Market uh, takes off. But there's a morality behind economics, and, and uh, the next book will be about that. Fabulous. I look forward to visiting with you again, and thank you again for sharing your insight and your years of experience in the financial markets in this book, one that is conversational, easy to read. Readers, if you have any curiosity about the free market system and uh, how to perhaps get a hold of your own finances and and, uh, make your goals a reality, this book, again, would be one I would recommend. A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. My guest, Stephen Taft. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Jay. Thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy. And joining me from Florida to talk about it is the author, Donald Miller. Welcome, sir, to the program. Good morning. Good How to, are you, Jay? Good to visit with you. I, uh, we, in our pre, uh, pre-recording visit, I understand you are also the author of seven other books. This book on Lafayette, uh, most people have heard the name, a little of his story, but don't know the details. Why did you choose to write about Lafayette? As I say in the subtitle, had an extraordinary life. He is remembered by most Americans for his role. He he, in the American Revolution, he was in, uh, commander of, you know, of, interna- of uh, continental troops in Virginia. And he chose Virginia because he had a, a, ch- a, a son-like relationship with George Washington, mm. who advised him throughout his life. And one of the interesting things that most people may not know is that uh, he, through inheritance, he was a multimillionaire. Really? And he... 
was um, his parent. His, he never knew his father, who was killed in a battle in in Germany, and which is the style of the family. They came from a long line of French knights, going back to the Middle Ages. And as a young boy living in the south central part of France, he was imbued with his family's background. And from an early age, he had a, a yearning for fame, which never, ever left him. Why did he, feel, why did he feel drawn to Virginia specifically, or to the United States, or the, the, not the United States, but the, the, the fresh colony? Why did he come to, to this country to, uh, to engage in warfare and, and other activities? Well, he was attending a dinner one night that was thrown by his commandant, and a man named uh, De Bruyne uh, Ruffec, and he and this was in Metz on the eastern uh, border of, of France. And the guest of honor that night was the brother of uh, uh, George the Third, mm-hmm. the Duke of Gloucester, and. I think for the first time ever, I'd go into who Gloucester was and why he was traveling in Europe. Anyway, he he much opposed his brothers uh, overseeing the hiring of Germans to fight the American colonists because the Brits, the British uh, soldiers were stretched around the world defending what was then the empire. So Lafayette said the moment that he heard about the American colonists, he was with them course, uh, something like 225 French officers had already gone over, and they didn't fare very well because, as you know, the, the, the government, the American government such as it was, was very, very poor, didn't have the right to tax and so forth. And so Lafayette, through the help, as I say, pretty much for the first time in English, um, through his friend de Broglie, uh, was able, the Broids knew who he was, where he came from, and that he had been in the cadet guard for Louis the Fifteenth and things like that. Grew up at Versailles, knew the who, the princes who would become later uh, kings, and, and he had that, that great association. At one point, after he married, at the age of uh, uh, 16, uh, another uh, he married a woman who, a girl, I should say, of 14, wow. and uh, the ceremony was held when anyway, Lafayette, believe it or not, at the age of 19, uh, suddenly had a, uh, a step-uncle who was the French ambassador to the court of St. James, and they went, he and one of his new cousins went over to visit, and he had a meeting in which he met George the Third. Can you imagine? Imagine, wow! Uh, but he was just filled with a love to uh, come to America, and he at uh, the Battle of Brandywine in the early part. Well, there was about seventy-five encounters before he ever came over. You know, in the war, and he came over, but he he played a major role in the Battle of Brandywine, which is near Chad's Ford and. Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania, and uh, uh, was uh, shot through the left uh, calf. Mm. So he was, he was proud to shed blood for America. You have you have described him also as a champion of equal rights. You've also described him as a uh, person that was uh, referred to as a hero in two worlds, the United right. uh, this continent and in Europe as well. There, he had a colorful life. Uh, you would think that privilege would have uh, diminished his enthusiasm for warfare and the other struggles. Why do you think he he uh, retained that enthusiasm? I think he was so impressed with the Americans that he met in terms of, in terms of equal rights. He tried to talk George Washington, who he called father, into uh, setting up an experimental farm in which black people, black workers, could earn their freedom. When George Washington, who was just becoming president, felt it was just too much to handle at that point, plus the fact he was a southern gentleman, um, Lafayette then uh, set up with his money, he, he bought and stocked a farm or plantation, if you will, 
in French Guiana in the Torrid Zone. And that lasted for seven years until it was crushed by the rebels and, and back in Paris by that time. Incredible. You also say yeah. that he was incarcerated for a number of years in prison yes. because of in his the, work. Exactly. In the course of his uh, rise, he was the uh, founder and first uh, uh, leader of the uh, Paris National Guard. He designed the uniform for it. He, he did the. He designed the. French tricolor, the flag, which flies today with three colors that are in the American flag. And he rose. Uh, he, he, he rose in the army later uh, after he was the instrument, if you will. He became the policeman for uh, the royal family, meaning uh, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and uh, ushered them back when the women's march on Versailles turned bloody. He protected them as the policeman, pretty much, of Paris, and and was pretty much that for for quite uh, quite a while. And a year after the uh, uh, the attack on the Bastille, he was in charge in that first year of cooling down the prison, which was, of course, anathema to anyone in the, among the more among the citizens of France. Yes. And uh, and then something that most Americans know nothing about uh, was instrumental in creating a tremendous pageant called La Fédération. Uh, and it was set up where the Eiffel Tower is now. Of course, it wasn't was there it? then. But it's a, a three-block space in which they build a natural amphitheater by digging up the soil and mounding it up, and there were at least two decks that, and there was a, he orchestrated this presentation that this was, he thought, the end of the revolution and things would be better from 100,000 people attended this on the anniversary. Wow. And, and later, and he became the, the general of the North. What he may or may not have, and probably did not know, was that uh, the royal family he he was instrumental in having them come back to paris in, instead of escaping as they probably were going to do and um he then became as i say the general of the, of the north to help to to defeat the austrians and prussians who had been called on by louis the 16th to help him defeat the french army to restore him as the king. Why is your book, Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy, important? What was the passion that drove you to write about his history? Well, when I find, found out all of these principles, for instance, I found out that uh, he advocated civil rights for all. He wrote the, he, he thought that the Declaration of Independence written by his friend Thomas Jefferson, was magnificent. And he wanted the same thing, even if possibly better, for the French. So he wrote it himself. He was uh, elected to the Chamber of Deputies, which is like the House, U.S. House of Representatives, on the liberal side. Mm -hmm. He always sat on the left and uh, uh, was instrumental in the defeat of of making sure that Napoleon didn't come back as emperor after the after the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium. In fact, he he rose and said, "We can't have him come back," and he give, gives all the the reasons for that. It's a magnificent short speech, but man, it just hits Grand because Trump. of all the thousands of soldiers that Napoleon was responsible for. They're landing on landing dead on the battlefields of Europe, mm. and in addition, he. He had certain things that, because he was imprisoned, he was caught by the Austrians as he tried to come to America. And this was in Belgium as he left the troops, mm. because you see, the Jacobin, the the rebels in Paris, uh, ordered him to come back and stand trial for treason, and he knew what that meant. As an aristocrat, he had rejected his title, but he knew that they regarded him not only as an aristocrat and death came for anyone who was an, arist an aristocrat. His, uh, 
his wife's um, mother and sister and grandmother were all guillotined Ouch. for that crime. And and so he knew he had to had to leave, but he didn't expect to be captured. They hoped to get out, but they were captured. How long, Donald, did it take for you to get the details, at least to your satisfaction, correct and uh, get to the point where you could share Lafayette's story? Well, I would say I, I've been working on the book about 12 years and have tried mm. to market it for another two. Mm. So it's been a consuming thing for me. Originally, I went over to France and I visited oh, five or six sites that Lafayette is famous for having been to. I've been to his houses, things like that. And I just felt that there was so much there that didn't need to be done. I would say one of the most remarkable things that I found out, I have a section that's uh, after Lafayette died in 1834, there were a number of things that happened posthumously that didn't that are so fascinating that I just couldn't put them down and just end it with his life the way most biographers do. Yes, I just mentioned the most to me the most interesting one at uh, Pierre Laval, the French premier during World War II, who collaborated with the Nazis. In 1935, his daughter and his son-in-law, came, who was a direct descendant of Lafayette, came to him and said, we would like to have your help in acquiring Lafayette's home, which is called Chateau, uh, uh, Chateau de, la, de la Grange. And it's about 30, 30 miles southeast of Paris. It was in very bad shape. Hmm. And Pierre Laval uh, provided the money. And I find it highly ironic that he would provide the money for the, for one, the man who's known as the champion of freedom. Uh, An amazing... Or the, apost- or, the apostle, or the apostle of liberty yes. would have later on have succumbed. He, he felt he had no other choice. And it was... It was either going with the Nazis or, or watch them destroy France. It's and, of course, for that, he was later captured, stood trial, and was assassinated. It's an amazing story. Five hundred, Almost 444 pages. This uh, obviously would have taken a lot of effort and uh, delving into the past of Lafayette. You also, uh, one, one, one of your chapters has an interesting title, at least from my perspective, considering that Lafayette lived in the 1700s. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the title means. It says Tennis Court Oath. What is a Tennis Court Oath referred to? Well, I spend many... First of all, I have to tell you that he fought in three revolutions. Yes. And that's why we have such such a long book to take care of that. Um, it took six years. Most people don't know this. It took six years for the king to lose his power. Slowly. He was absolute, you know, when, it, when, the, Correct. when the difficulties began. And through one change after another, the Constitutional Assembly and so forth. Well, in the course of, of this, the, the delegates who were asked by the king originally to come together to see how he could solve his tax problems, the nation's tax problems. And they, at one point, were meeting, um, oh, let's say about a half at the palace at Versailles, but not, not close about, you know, um, let's say half a mile in a special building called the uh, Building of the Small Pleasures, which mm-hmm. was where the, the fets and the fireworks and so forth were arranged. And they were met there. And so uh, in the course of that, they were locked out of the building that they were meeting in, and they immediately went over to the tennis court. Really? Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's an indoor tennis court at Versailles, which you can visit, of course. Correct. And one of the things I found fascinating, in French, ten, uh, tennis is called jeu de paume, and that means hand game. Tennis began as a hand. You used your hand, not with a racket. Fascinating. Uh, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because it helped me refresh myself with French and to have that wonderful experience. So in my book, I use pretty much use the, the French uh, spelling sometimes. For instance, I don't say D-U-K-E, I use D-U-C, which is the mm. word for 
the same word, of course. And I think that helps the reader come into the book and, and realize that we're dealing with some extraordinary people here. Incredible. Lafayette, his extraordinary life and legacy, and my author, Donald Miller. Why should my listeners get a copy of this, and where can they get a copy of it? Well, it's listed with Amazon.com and also uh, with uh, com and, uh, and other sources. And I, a friend of mine is expecting to have the book uh, in his hands today from that source. Wonderful. And, uh, they can also do a search under your name, of course, uh, Donald Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, standard yes, spelling, and find right. not only this book but the others that you've written. So Several you, of, of other other ones are still on there, yes. Incredible. Well, I hope that we can visit again about Lafayette or whatever might happen. Is there a sequel to this uh, edition coming on? No, I may, I may do my memoirs. My, uh, I, as, a, as a journalist and interviewer, very much like yourself, I... I have several hundred people that uh, I would like to uh, give my points of view on uh, along the way. Now, as someone, another writer said to me when she was asked a similar question, why don't you write a memoir about these people that you met? And she said to me, but you know, Donald, I, your interview was just a, a few minutes or maybe uh, an hour at the most. And I thought, that's very true. And so that true. sort of stopped me for a while. But then one day... When I was out biking, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I can just do brief paragraphs and make my impressions. Well, as it turns out, I've got more than enough for a book. Incredible. Uh, Donald, what was the most uh, exciting or unusual discovery you made about Lafayette and his visits to the United States? Well, to find out the reason that he came back as a wildly lionized hero of the American Revolution 41 years after its had occurred. The country was kind of in a funk at the time. It, it didn't seem to have much leadership. So the country went wild over Lafayette, who came for a specific reason, and that was to lay the cornerstone at the uh, Bunker Hill Monument in Boston. Fascinating. And, and the fascinating thing is, uh, even though uh, John Quincy Adams, the president, admired Lafayette tremendously, and even had him stay at the end of his visit at the White House, was an opponent of the Masons. And so he refused to be the um, general chairman and the person who would be saluted. So guess who took his place? Really? (laughs) Monsieur Lafayette. That's right. Fascinating. And he was given a tremendous welcome before something like 4,000 people on the hillside there. None of them could probably hear what they were saying because of, you know, no PR system. <laughs> but anyway, there was a tremendous luncheon that uh, only men could attend afterward. And, um, and Daniel Webster greeted him with a fantastic salutation. Thank you for sharing Lafayette's story. And again, it is a, uh, a well-researched book, almost, four, well, it's 444 pages or so. And uh, the title again is Lafayette, His Extraordinary Life and Legacy. And our author, Donald Miller, shares the story of Lafayette and how he impacted not only Europe, but also the United States in uh, the early years. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Jay, very much. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing. More joy and less judgment. You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. 
The book is titled Forever Calais Mom, a story about life, my child's death, and what forever really means. And my guest joining me from near Calgary, Alberta, Canada, is author and mom, Lorreen Huliski. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. This is a uh, a story that's uh, heart-wrenching, uh, a tough story, because it deals with uh, a very personal tragedy that happened in your life. Share with my listeners a little of your background and how this book got to be written. I'm pretty much as normal a person as uh, anyone can be. There, I grew up on a farm in southern Saskatchewan, um, you know, had the same sort of dreams of a white picket fence and life that uh, most young people wanted, at least back in that era, considering I'm 60, so it's a little bit different for the young people now. But um, then I just, through a series of uh, happenstances, ended up uh, in Hawaii um, and fell in love and had a beautiful daughter and moved back to Canada and grew up and ended up in Calgary, and it was there that uh, my life took a, a very sudden and dramatic turn from what I imagined it to be. Your daughter, Calais, was born in Hawaii, uh, and shortly after that, you returned to, to Canada, your home country, uh, because you felt it was a better situation for her, and things just didn't work out in Hawaii. No. Um, you know, sometimes... Uh, vacation romances uh, tend to not have longevity, and and I think that was sort of the situation for for me and and Kalei's dad, Peter. Your personal background, besides being an author, are there other, uh, I guess, focuses in your life that you have pursued besides uh, besides the the writing of this story? I'm an, I'm an analyst by profession. I've worked in several industries. Right now, I'm in the oil and gas industry. Um, my na- my natural nature is to try to understand how things work, and trying to track molecules and gas pipelines uh, fits well with that tendency. The story of Calais. Uh, share with my listeners how it came about that uh, Calais is no longer with us. What happened to her life, and why was it cut short? Well, again, we were pretty normal mom and, and daughter, and at a teenager's, teenage years hit, and she started to go off uh, her path a bit. School became less important. She started hanging out with a, a new and, and a higher-risk group of friends, and I knew she was in trouble. So uh, after months of you know, trying to hold on to her, we, uh, my family and I staged in what I call an intervention, and we sort of tricked her and uh, got her to my parents' ranch for a couple of weeks, thinking that I'll give her some time to uh, get her head back on straight. Mm. And I think we accomplished that. When we returned to uh, Calgary, um, she had sort of one last event she wanted to do with these friends, and sadly enough, uh, it was an overnight camping trip on the way back. Uh, the driver of the car fell asleep. We believe everyone in the vehicle was asleep, and uh, six kids died that day. Ouch. In a head-on crash. Unbelievable. How long ago did that take place? Your daughter was, uh, what, about 15 at the time? She was 16 and a 16 half. and a half, okay. And it would have been 14 years ago this Thursday. Her death anniversary is in a couple of days. Ouch. And you have spent 14 years thinking and analyzing the circumstances surrounding Clay's death and trying to get your, your head wrapped around it. What did you finally decide was the purpose for sharing your story? The real purpose was how many people live this secret life. Nobody wants to be forced into an unimaginable event, whether it's the death of a child you know, your house gets burned down in a in a forest fire, cancer, all those things are unimaginable. But what happens is people don't want to know about that world. They prefer it to be unimaginable. So what happens then is everyone that is having to live that way does it in secret. And I think that's just such a cry and shame. Here we are 
wanting to know everything about, you know, sort of what I consider slightly off-the-wall people through reality shows Mm -hmm. and want to look behind the curtain to see how they live. But, you know, their next-door neighbor who is having to build a a new lifetime in a different world uh, that has many, many, many challenges to it, they don't want to know anything about. So there's not enough written. We kind of tend to stick with, you know, sort of the standard five stages of grief. I believe that we need to add color to that and share more about that so that not only can the people who are forced into it have more information, but everybody around them can be more empathetic and supportive. At the time of uh, Calais' death and the burial, and you were visiting her graveside, and at that moment, another individual happened to be there that intersected with your life. Share a little of Sandra's story as well. Sandra's son, Jarrett, died from a brain aneurysm. Hmm. And she, so they had a few years on me in this journey, and it, I was very fortunate that at that point in her journey, Sandy was ready to finally look up and put her arms around someone else. And I happened to be that someone else. Beautiful timing and, and appropriate timing. What did you learn or what have you taken away from this experience besides the, the obvious deep grief that any parent would experience? What have you learned as a person? Is there something that's a, a positive of uh, this story? I, I think that I've you know tapped into obviously strengths of myself that I didn't know I, I had. But I think probably the one thing that gives me pause every now and then is just how much we can push our brains to think far beyond anything we ever thought we could when we really have to. I I often tell people sometimes I thought so hard trying to find the right way to explain an emotion or something that was basically unspeakable that my head hurt from it. But when you have to, you can find ways. And I think we have a whole world of great thinkers out there that just need to push themselves a little bit and maybe share what they learn. Is there anything in the, what I would call, or many people would refer to as a spiritual blessing or, uh, I guess, discovery that you perhaps made during this journey? Absolutely. Um, You know, I took faith with a grain of salt. I was a fair-weather you know, God believer. Uh, I live every day with faith. I have, my life is surrounded with angels. Um, I do my very best to uh, hold on to faith. It's one of the most slippery things to hold on to, mm-hmm. but I work at it every day. You have talked also, uh, one of your, one of your uh, chapters is titled The Red Phone. What does that chapter deal with? Basically what it it deals with is a lot of, it was a way that I found to be able to try to illustrate how much time I spent communicating with my dead child, how much time I spent communicating with God, and how that helped me survive those early uh, days and weeks of death. You have also titled one chapter, Future Blackboard. Is that future hope that you have penned in that chapter? You know, everyone has a future blackboard. We humans are future-based people, everything. From this second, you're already writing onto your future blackboard. Most often, we don't put in little things. We put in more major things on our future blackboard. It's just that once we write something on it, it stays on there until that time has come and passed. I struggled with that greatly because most everything on my future blackboard included my child. Mm. So I had to let things like graduating from high school and graduating from university pass. And it wasn't until I took a look at my future blackboard and saw how empty it was that I realized I needed to write something on it. Otherwise, I had no future. And that's where I finally sat down four years ago and wrote Forever Calais Mom on it and committed myself to writing this book. The story of uh, of her life and your life, how would you describe this as a book that would uh, benefit someone who reads this? What is the hope that you have in sharing the story? I think 
my hope is that we're we're more open to talking about things that maybe we're afraid of. But most important is every single parent I've talked to said the one thing they miss the most is saying their child's name. Mm. So to me, that was where Forever Calais' mom came in. I'm communicating, you know, three things. One, I'm still her mom. Two, I get to say her name. And three, by identifying myself in that way, I'm telling people, I'm okay to talk to you about her. You don't have to be afraid to ask. That's what I hope, is that eventually we're okay with hearing the names of the children who have died and be open to uh, supporting parents in that way. Do you feel that the reader is going to leave the last page of your book and feel uplifted by the the outcome of what you have discovered? I think there'll be a whole bunch of words they'll feel at the end <laughs> of the book. Yes. Changed is probably the one that I, I have been hearing the most uh, from people who said to have read the, read the book. They said that they felt like they walked in my shoes, they felt my emotion, and they walked away changed. Some weren't changed because of the death experience. Some took parts of the different chapters and applied them just to their normal lives, the future blackboard being one of them. So changed. I hope people walk away changed. Do you feel also that this uh, maybe has some good insight into how we might be able to share with someone who has experienced a deep loss? Absolutely. Um, You know, we've worn out you know, anger, blame, uh, depression, those five stages of grief. Every single chapter in the book adds color to those words in ways that I think people will be able to understand and appreciate more. Lorene, thank you for sharing your story and this very difficult, difficult story that you have shared. Forever, Kayleigh's Mom, a story about life, my child's death, and what forever really means. Lorene Holiski has been my guest. Loreen, where do we get copies of this book? Well, right now it's it's all available only online uh, because I'm in Canada. The, the best place is to go to Chapters Indigo, but it's also available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Do you think there may be a, a follow-up book to this release? There is a follow-up book. It's one that I've been thinking about. Uh, I know I'm brave enough to write it, I don't know if I'm brave enough to publish it yet. <laughs> well, best of luck on this uh, this particular book, and hopefully, a lot of uh, a lot of readers will uh, join in the experience of uh, of what you've shared. The title again is "Forever Kayleigh's Mom: A Story of Life, My Child's Death, and What Forever Really Means." Loreen Holiski has been my guest. Thank you, Loreen, for being part of today's program. You're very welcome. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.